Well, I forgot to mention that I will throw a poll on the blog post. I'll link the blog uh, edition in the show notes here. But uh, go ahead and vote for your favorite uh, game amongst these choices. You've got Patchwork. You've got Nova Luna. You've got the other games in the uh, trilogy of Polyominoes, Spring Meadows, uh, Cottage Garden, Indian Summer, as well as Sagani. Uh, those are the, you know, not including the, fr- you know, framework just being released. Which one is your favorite? Are there, are they the polyomino games or are they the square tile games? Basically go ahead and, and vote and let us know. Hello everyone. And welcome to the board game doctors. My name is Phil and I'll be your board game doctor today. And let's gear up for Rosen blog number four. So, yeah, I had a, <laughs> this is kind of a last minute script and, you know, I, I put together a few ideas here at the last moment. So hopefully um, it's interesting uh, to those who enjoy Uwe Rosenberg games. Um, if you haven't heard before, um, this podcast focuses not only on just games in general that I enjoy playing, not only solo, but with uh, other people in person and mostly online these days. Uh, I prefer the medium to heavyweight Euro games, but any games that are fun and interactive and worth playing, I will try at least once, (laughs) and we'll have some thoughts about those on the podcast. But one set of games, and one game designer in particular, uh, that's my favorite, is Uwe Rosenberg. Uh, All of his games have spoken to me in one degree or another. Um, Of course, Agricola was my... uh, "Quote unquote uh, gate uh, or the you know the welcoming um, set of games that uh, pushed me towards heavier euros, and so I hold a special place in my heart for these games, and thus have dedicated at least one episode a month to talking about these uh, uh, the games that Uwe Rosenberg has made, from the light games to the heavy." Um, moving forward, I think a bi-weekly podcast is going to work out best, the best for me, uh, in our, you know, busy schedules, um, hopefully for Jacob as well. And, uh, hopefully we can get together and podcast again sometime soon, but let's move forward with Rosenblog number four. I like to open with the poll results that I posted the last time I, uh, did one of these, um, Rosenblogs, which was about a month ago. And that episode, if you listen to it, is all about, uh, well, it's about a few different games. So, you know, I talked about Agricola and um, some strategies there, but I also touched on Glass Road and gave a review on it after 10 plays. And I threw a post or a poll on my blog post asking you guys what your favorite mechanisms were in Glass Road. Um, So the questions... uh, you know, ranged from, you know, the variety of building tiles to the resource wheels, simultaneous card play, and quick playtime. And uh, almost 100 voters uh, came on and participated in the poll, which I'm grateful for. And it seems like almost half, uh, 44% or 43 voters, said that the resource wheels were the most uh, intriguing or their favorite, you know, portion of this game which is really cool. I tend to agree. I think the simultaneous card play for me uh, takes the cake a little bit more because it's, uh, it, I don't know, it, it, it seems out of place, but in a good way. When I think about Uwe Rosenberg games, it's that kind of uh, player-player interaction that is not often seen. I feel like most of his 
interaction is either, you know, uh, worker placement, blocking, or, you know, taking actions that are better or buildings, you know, tiles that are better than other players uh, or before other players and, and you know, improving your situation. Something in a, in a low interaction Euro game that you would see. But in this case, it, it really, for me, the simultaneous card play kind of puts you, try, try, it tries to put you in the mind of someone else and your, you know, your opponents and trying to um, uh, maneuver and play the best cards from your hand as possible to eke out as many actions as you can to improve your efficiency and do well in the game. And that was the second favorite uh, uh, poll result here at 24%, almost 25%, uh, with uh, quick play time and variety of buildings following after. Uh, five voters did say that, <laughs> that this game was terrible, so that's totally fine too. But this is one of my favorite uh, Uwe Rosenberg games, and uh, yeah, it just it's such a rich puzzle every time that I play it, and to do so in about an hour is a win for me. So let's move on. There's not too much to talk about as far as news. Uh, I just wanted to highlight and bring to uh, uh, bring to you guys the the news that I heard last week that I think Framework is officially um, debuted uh, and for sale, I believe, by Pegasus Spiel. I don't know, you know, for this, uh, I, I don't think it's, at least for me here in the United States, I don't know if this is true and if it's available for retail yet. I tried checking today, actually, and seeing if this game was available um, online, and I think I'd have to look a little bit harder if it truly is available for retail. But um, I just heard from, you know, sources and podcasts last week that this was officially available. Um, and so I wanted to take the time to review. Let's let's go ahead into the review of um, Nova Luna. And so in light of Framework being released, as you may know, um, Framework is the third in the trilogy of games that... Uh, followed suit after the polyomino uh, tetralogy I'm gonna say uh, which started with patchwork and then it was followed it was like the Hobbit of <laughs> the the polyomino tile lane series followed by the Lord of the Rings trilogy of um, uh, Spring Meadow Cottage Garden and Indian Summer maybe not in that particular order I don't know just off the cuff but so anyway so he had a stint Rosenberg had a stint of these four polyomino games, which which you may have played. Uh, they're fairly light, um, you know, closer to more of a, a family weight type of experience. Patchwork is for two players only, and the other three are for uh, more players. All of them are solo, of course, which is something that I do most often. And in light of that, oh, I forget when Nova Luna was was released. I guess I could look that up here real quick on Board Game Geek. Uh, it was released uh, 2019. So in 2019, um, Nova Luna was, I guess, a follow-up to some of these uh, polyomino games where it took a lot of the DNA from Patchwork in particular and reduced the uh, tiles that you were picking up from a polyomino type of configuration to a uh, just a square tile, you know, your run-of-the-mill square tiles. And so I wanted to compare the two and do kind of a broad comparison between the two. 
Oh, and before I forget to uh, not not only just just to rehash as well, another game of Rosenberg's that is coming out this year is Patchwork's um, Stack and Stuff. Um, if you hearken back to the office, um, you have Patchwork, which is cake, um, to quote uh, Kevin. <laughs> and you have Patchwork Express, which is like a cupcake. And now you have mini cupcakes in the form of Patchwork Stack and Stuff. I don't know how true that analogy holds, but um, that is being released this year. It's once again, I, I didn't search too hard to see if it was available for retail, but there is that as well, which I believe just shortens the game time considerably. Um, the tile count as well, the grid that you play it on, um, but it's still got the uh, the same features of Patchwork, which we are going to discuss here in this uh, comparison between these two uh, series of games that Rosenberg has come out with in recent years. So you have your polyomino games and your tallying games. So um, one caveat, I've only played Nova Luna once, um, and that was a solo game. I can obviously see what would happen in a multiplayer game, just based on the, the ease of the rules for this game, as well as the comparisons that you have to patchwork. And I will dedicate more time to patchwork um, as I approach 50 plays of it. I have been consistently playing this game for a couple months now. And it's really opened my eyes to the depth of a, you know, seemingly light and, um, uh, you know, frivolous game that does not have a lot of strategic depth to it. That has been um, demystified for me. And I have appreciated the the depth of this game. Perhaps the the overall strategic depth isn't as you know it's not the same as some of the other worker placement games that uh, Mr. Rosenberg has come out with. But there is still some depth there that uh, is a pleasant uh, experience to to dive in and explore. But once again, to compare these two, um, how do, how do these games work in general? So both Nova Luna and Patchwork work by having your player you know, tokens be set in between a whole circle of tiles. They are all, you know, they're all arranged um, around some sort of board. In Nova Luna, it's a uh, lunar board where the tiles kind of fit in by themselves. And in Patchwork, it's, it's basically the timer board. On your turn, you, you have a choice of the first three uh, tiles or, you know, polyomino tiles or regular square tiles in front of you to choose from. And you choose one tile, place it onto your own board or tableau, and advance your player token to that spot that you just um, <clears throat> unoccupied. Now, if your tile is still behind your opponent's tile, uh, either, you know, your one opponent in Patchwork or multiple opponents in Nova Luna, then you can still continue to take a play. Whoever is at the at the back of this circular board with the tiles that you can grab uh, will always be next in player order. So there is no fixed uh, turn order among the players of this game of these games. And so they they share this this um, basic uh, turn taking uh, DNA. However, some of the nuances. Uh, differ quite greatly between these two, other than the fact that 
we have polyomino tiles in Patchwork and square tiles in Nova Luna. In Patchwork, you have two different icons that you can see on your tiles. You have income tiles, which are depicted by a button. And, and so you're collecting buttons in this game and spending them to acquire tiles. And you also have timing uh, icon, which is the um, uh, hourglass, uh, which advances you in the timing track, in the, which is uh, where all of the polyomino uh, tiles are situated around in the center of the table. And so you're balancing in patchwork the your income of buttons, gaining them, and, and as you progress through this timing track, you pass buttons in order to receive as many buttons as you have displayed on your own grid. That's another thing too, that's another uh, difference that we're going to come to is the grid. But uh, in, in Nova Luna, as far as the uh, what's on the tiles, it's mostly the scoring opportunities that you have on Nova Luna. You have uh, different uh, circle, different circles on these tiles with different colors inside of them. Um, each tile in and of itself represents one color, but if you place certain a certain amount of colors in the form of tiles around, uh, you know, a central tile per se. Uh, for example, if you have one, if you have a red tile in the middle and it has a requirement that you need to put a yellow and a blue tile adjacent to it. If you do so orthogonally, orthogonally then uh, you get to place a disc on top of your uh, tile that has reached that that requirement, that, and it's fulfilled. Um, you, everyone starts with 20 discs, discs, I believe, or so, and the first player to run out of those discs wins with certain situations uh, regarding if you run out of tiles or tie. And in Patchwork, the game ends when some when both players pass the last income button on the timing track and, and everyone runs out of time to put tiles on their board. Finally, the last thing, Nova Luna has a very open uh, tableau. There are no set boundaries to your tableau. Um, you're just basically playing tiles where you can orthogonally to already placed tiles on the board. In patchwork, you don't have that requirement. You can play it anywhere within a set uh, grid, which I believe is a 10 by 10 grid. You also have the chance to score a seven point tile if you do fill out um, enough squares to fill a seven by seven um, portion of your player board in patchwork. So those are some of the differences and uh, similarities that are shared by these games. And then if you look further in the Polyomino Trilogy and the now-complete uh, Tile Lane Trilogy, there are nuances between each of those games for scoring and for uh, gameplay. So to compare these games, if you were to ask me, once again, only having played Nova Luna once um, and Patchwork almost 50 times, which one appeals to me? Right now, of course, Patchwork appeals to me more. Why? So while Nova Luna has more of a, I guess, straightforward method of telling you uh, where you can place your tiles, how they score, um, and, and such, it seems like a more simplified uh, version of Patchwork. Uh, it's, it, you know, you don't have the added layer of income, you don't have the added layer of timing, and you don't have the additional 
spatial puzzle that come you know that comes naturally with polyomino tiles and so therefore i think those three features in patchwork add to the strategic depth that is inherent in in patchwork compared to nova luna which is i think a more family friendly uh, introductory version to a spatial puzzle you don't need to worry about where pieces fit in just as long as you're creating a good, you know, good adjacency with the tiles in order to score. Now, Nova Luna is appealing because you do have opportunities to score many different discs at the same time and to fulfill many different tiles uh, requirements with certain plays. And so you do feel clever when you do happen to find the right tiles and play them in the right areas. However, um, one thing that both games have is that you get to see all the tiles that are uh, will be available and with the knowledge that you can only select the three tiles ahead of you you also get to know and and strategize behind the fact that uh, if i go here then my opponent will have the next three tiles there you can look at their board in patchwork in particular you look at the board you can see oh they only have you know this many buttons therefore they will not be able to pick up any of these tiles and I can plan around that, or they might, uh, but that's a good thing because if they go for that tile, then I, that'll jump my position, or at least uh, allow me to, uh, you know, grab more tiles if they take more timing uh, tokens and 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 such. And so there are a lot more decisions than meets the eye in Patchwork, whereas Nova Luna, I think if it's a two-player game, it's fine, and, that, and that's another thing too. I. I would I would have thought that having more than two players in Nova Luna would make it more interesting. However, it's kind of the opposite for me. While I haven't played it that way yet, what I can see is that with Nova Luna, there are if you're playing with the full player count with four players, then you really don't know. You can't really predict what tiles you're going to have on your turn when it comes back to you. And therefore, you're playing a more tactical game and you're responding uh, to things rather than enabling yourself to uh, create the tiles that you want or the situation that you want in order to grab the tiles that you need in order to fulfill your spatial puzzle, as well as gain as much income and, and so on and so forth. And so for me, that's another reason I think Patchwork is perfect because it's a two player game. Uh, it, that's that might be the same issue that I may have with the other trilogy games, a trilogy of polyomino games that I haven't touched yet, which I will, and and talk about in a future episode. Maybe I will be wrong, but I feel like the dual aspect of of patchwork that the, its inherent nature to be able to get inside of your opponent's head, uh, look at their board, appraise their board and yours as well to make the best situation, you know, the best choice possible is very um, enlightening and, and appealing. It doesn't create as big of a decision space as, say, Agricola or even Glass Road because you're only choosing three tiles on your turn. But it does allow you to create future, um, I don't know, phantom <laughs> um, predictions, I suppose in the future so so to me that that future planning 
adds so much to the strategic depth that Patchwork offers. Un, you know, in comparison to Nova Luna, which takes that a step back because of the the player count. It comes down to the player count. So I will have to try this out at two players. Maybe that's the preferred. Actually, let's take a look at Board Game Geek. Uh, it says, yeah, best at two. So I, I think the community, uh, this may reflect what the community thinks as well about how these certain games play um, and what player count they, they believe is optimal. So uh, for now, Patchwork takes it for me. Uh, the 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 original uh, one that started it all, not counting Feast for Odin, of course, which gave birth to Patchwork. But thank goodness for that, because uh, we have uh, a fantastic dueling um, game that is light enough to learn and teach easy, but it has a lot of strategic depth, which um, rings true for me. So there you go. Let's move on <laughs> to something a little bit more heavy. Let's go ahead and talk about Fields of Arl. So Fields of Arl was a, a game, I believe in 2017 was when it was published. Once again, I suppose I can look this up as I talk. Uh, so this game was published in 2014. <laughs> Never mind. So so this game is approaching, you know, eight years of uh, at the time of this recording. Um, this game followed um, other, you know, fantastic games like Agricola, um, or at Labora, Lahav, the you know the Harvest trilogy there, and this um, is, uh, you know, actually is another dueling game where uh, two people, or you know, if you're playing solo, you can do that, of course, but two people get to uh, play this worker placement sandbox type of of game where you are building out the best farmland uh you're doing many different things you're you're harvesting your crops uh like uh, grain and flax you are digging out peat from from uh your uh peat uh areas <laughs> i don't know what they're called and uh you're you're gathering sheep and they're breeding just like they they usually do in Uwe Rosenberg games. You are also traveling to different cities or surrounding Arla and delivering goods. And so there are a lot of different things that you, that you can do in this game. And uh, and the worker placement aspect is is very interesting as well as you um, alternate per different seasons and taking different a different display of actions each round. Uh, so this game is available to play for free on yukata.de, which is where I've been um, gratefully, you know, thankfully uh, getting a lot of good plays in. And so therefore, my mind has gone to strategy as I do have this game available to play with other people around the world. Um, I've won a few, I've lost a few, I've learned a few things, and I wanted to dive in a little bit deeper and um, you know, as I will for these games that are available to to play more readily with with other people, I do want to share my experiences and thoughts on different aspects of these games. And so, for Fields of Arl, um, I will save um, a full review at a different time. But I wanted to focus on a set of buildings. Uh, of course, you can build buildings in this game too. Uh, so, uh, I want to talk about the small houses. Now, the small houses are denoted 
by the green-backed, um, they're, they're, they have a green back to them. Uh, there are two different sets of small houses that are, they're, they're technically all called small houses, but you have a light green backed uh, a set of tiles, four tiles, that have a timer <clears throat> on the front of them. Uh, they basically say every, every every November, which in this game means every switch, in between switch, uh, between summer and fall, the two, uh, or summer and winter, the two different um, areas of the board that you can play your workers in. You get to take a, a certain action or, you know, gain certain resources. It's meant for beginners to kind of give a boost to your resource gathering in order to help enable uh, certain strategies and, and teach you the game. And then you have a set of seven uh, small houses that are delineated by a darker green back that offer a few different um, options for resource conversion. And so... You know, to me, you know, as a beginner, I, I will say that I'm a beginner. I'm, I believe I'm up to 16 plays of, of Fields of Arl. And I only say that, um, uh, you know, that I feel like I'm a beginner because uh, people, of course, um, there, there are a lot of, of, of people who have been in this hobby um, since the time of these games and their release and therefore have a lot more experience than I do, both in person and online. And so... I don't want to put myself in a position where I claim to know everything, uh, but I want to learn with you about these games. And so I, I posted recently on BoardGameGeek to see what people had to say about these small houses, because I did notice that a lot of people um, hadn't gone for these houses to begin with, which goes against the grain of what I thought people would typically do uh, in Uwe Rosenberg games. Uh, take Glass Road, for example. You have your three types of buildings, your blue production, your kind of gray, or sorry, yellow immediate buildings, uh, where you, if you play it down, you immediately gain whatever's on the tile. And then your orange end of game uh, objective cards, which lets you, you know, gives you a purpose to um, chase after to score at the end of the game. And then your blue production buildings allow you to convert resources one to another. Um, and so, um, to me, you know, maybe this is wrong for Glass Road 2, but it seems like, well, earlier on in the game, perhaps you can set up a sort of engine where you are, where you're, you, you know, you take a blue production building and use that to convert re some resources into others in order to enable uh, yourself to be able to purchase other buildings um, and, and further your game. And therefore, I immediately translated that to Fields of Arl. And thought that that was key. And so a lot of the games that I played um, earlier on, that was one of the four actions that I had uh, performed in the very first round of the game, was to take one of these uh, small houses and try to utilize them throughout the game. However, I personally have had you know troubles trying to do this because as I've slowly observed um, you know uh, other players as well as reflected on my own scores. Uh, the games, I guess, that I tended to score a little bit higher, I did not utilize these small houses uh, at all or very little. And so I went, I turned to the community and I asked them, hey, what do you think about small houses? Do you have a favorite one? And are they any good, basically? And I got some good responses here. Now, I want to share some of them with you. Uh, so... Some people said, actually, most people said that they don't 
tend to use these small houses at all. Um, rather, these small houses tend to be um, available in a pinch to help you get resources through conversions that may not be available on the board because of worker placement blocking or perhaps someone took a, another building that would have accomplished the same thing. Uh, a lot of people uh, said that they just don't take these small buildings at all uh, during the game and that there are far better and more efficient actions that you can take uh, elsewhere on the board as well as other buildings that you should focus on. I should mention that they're only worth one victory point and uh, they each cost a building resource and a grain. So they're they're fairly cheap, but they don't offer much as far as victory points. Um, only so so basically their effect is what it comes down to. Uh, some people said that they do have some favorite uh, 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 built houses as well, uh, which we will talk about here in a little bit. Uh, and so while they do have their favorite, the the consensus was that yes, these buildings offer a little value even at the beginning of the game and, and during the game and are only there in case you need them. So let's talk about them very briefly. The first four starter, quote unquote starter, and and I gather from the rules that they aren't um, intended to be mixed with the darker green ones. Um, so you, you're not shuffling all 11 of them and choosing four. You either start with the four basic buildings or you choose four from the seven darker green buildings. But for the f the first four, they actually, yeah, they're, they're pretty good, I think. Um, they allow you to uh, basically gain uh, resources for free uh, every at the end of every summer. So, yeah, so that's that's great. I think the best one is the workshop. Getting a free wood is great for buildings and uh, to, to pay for buildings as well as to pay for vehicles which will enable a lot of uh, ways to acquire food, victory points, and um, and the like. And it also allows you to move up the master um, workshop, and so uh, or like the the master action. So so you can upgrade the. Uh, that's another feature of the game is that you can upgrade the actions that you take by moving up small little tracks in between uh, to the side of the, each of these actions. So when you do take that action in the future. It nets you more resources or allows you to convert more resources with one action. And so it's it's a very keen strategy that people use in this game that I've noticed is to um, take a few actions on the the workshop or the it's it's the bottom action in order to make other actions more efficient. So this um, light green small house that is titled workshop is very good. Uh, then I would put the farmer's house next. Getting clay is very important, and receiving peat as well to be able to con to not only fuel your house but to convert those into other resources through the the peat boat. And then the plow maker's workshop. Putting down fields are good for collecting resources to convert into the goods that you can ship uh, and trade to other places. But then finally, um, the novice's hut I think is is at the bottom of the list for me. Just taking a grain. And moving a dike seems like you can do those um, with other actions and are worth more of your time. So uh, moving on, let's talk about the seven advanced small houses. I won't get into each action. I do want to highlight some of the, the buildings that other people had 
uh, mentioned in the post. Um, I'll, I'll link that post in the show notes if you want to follow along for more details. But some people really liked the loadman uh, loading station, where it allows you to take peat from the supply, not from your board, and play it on empty spots on your vehicle, uh, and so you can gain those uh, those pieces of peat. <laughs> I like this this uh, building too, and this action because peat I found out not only is very useful to um, serve as as fuel for your home, which is a requirement. It's like the feeding that you have to do uh, at the beginning of the, or at the end of the summer action. But you also can convert that with a peat boat into some of the other resources that are trackable, such as flax and grain, uh, hides, food, or not not food, but um, the, the other resources that, that you have there. And so, um, you know, if you combo that with the the depot, which doubles the amount of points that you get at the end of the game for having lots of leftover resources, then yeah, you know, that, uh, that could be a good solid source of points at the end of the game, which I'm starting to understand and, and really enjoy. And so I see, I see the benefit of that. I like the schnapps distillery as well. Uh, if you do need food in a pinch, uh, you can trade a grain and a peat for three food. And so that's, that's not bad. I think if, if other actions are not as readily available, you don't have anywhere to travel in order to get food, then you can get food in this, this regard and perhaps, you know, save, um, those, uh, you know, your animals or something like that for, for points rather than for food. Um, I will, oh, and the carpenter's workshop as well. You can get a lot of points, uh, from turning stalls into stables, um, or stables into stalls. No, it's the other way around. Uh, not only are there a lot of visible points there, but it allows you to hold a lot more animals. And so if you're going for a more animal heavy strategy, then, um, that can help enable that. Uh, and then you have some that are, uh, some buildings that are in the middle. And then the, I think the, arguably the worst building here is the wood trader, which is where you turn an upgraded wood, which is called a plank and to, um, uh, and something into, or a plank and a peat or something like that into two wood, you know, downgraded wood. Um, no, there, there are much better ways to obtain wood in this game. So, so there's that perhaps these buildings may, they may serve a, a different function. If you do take into account the expansion to this game, which is a teen trade, which allows for a third player to play the game. So if a lot more spaces are being blocked, in, during the game, and then maybe you'll have to rely on these these uh, small houses in order to make conversions that are meaningful to you and your strategy. Otherwise, in a two-player game, and especially at a one-player game, when there's not a lot of, um, I guess, blocking interaction, it, it still feels pretty open to me. Um, however, I, I, I do see I do see like some actions being better than others, and so there is competition and racing towards the best actions in this game. Uh, I will say, uh, because of that, at the two-player, it, it still feels open enough to me that relying on these small houses to enable certain conversions and strategies just isn't as efficient as one would think. And so so I appreciate the input uh, from the community. Uh, some of the names there uh, are people that I've seen um, and talked to and and know that I know that I've 
that have a lot of experience with these Rosenberg games. And so I appreciate their, their thoughts and, and guidance. And uh, yeah, um, just wanted to leave that thought with you as well in regards to Fields of Marl. All right, so let's round off this episode with uh, another Agricola uh, strategy corner. Uh, I'm on an Agricola kick. Uh, I am gearing up towards my 100th play of this game combined uh, the, you know, combining the original plays that I've had, the plays that I've had with the original game, as well as the revised edition, which is available on Board Game Arena. The original is available online as well, both on playagricola.com as well as Boite Ajou, which is a French uh, site similar to Board Game Arena. However, um, you know, Board Game Arena is is bar none the, the best site to play online games with other people, and therefore I've dedicated my time and my money as well, uh, as far as collecting is concerned, uh, to, to understanding the revised edition. So, uh, in the last episode, although it's not titled this, I did focus more of my efforts on the early game, and to some, the, the first seven rounds of the game, I feel the major focus is, of course, um, you know, pending, or um, with the caveat of the cards that you draft in the game, which can really skew you one way or another, but... The underlying goals of the first seven rounds to me, as from my own place and what I've observed other people do, is one, to um, build a third room. You know, some people can, you know, play with just two players, uh, two workers. They don't need extra homes. Some cards allow that. But in general, if you were to think of this game without the cards, getting that third room is important in order to get you to um, your third worker as well in order to take more actions and gain more points in the game, of course. The third thing, of course, which is probably most important, is to establish a food engine. We talked about the differences between feeding your family, whether that's through crops, primarily, through animals, maybe both, or through other uh, means, which, you know, introducing the cards themselves, both major uh, major improvements Minor improvements in occupation cards uh, can help enable different ways of feeding. So once you've kind of played through those first seven rounds, which are combined into two stages, and have est- hopefully established um, some of these metrics, such as your food engine, and perhaps you've got a third room and a third worker in front of you, then you can progress to the uh, f- the second portion of the game, the mid-game which I believe comprises the next four rounds, or two stages, of Agricola. You've got stage three, which introduces uh, vegetables and... Oh, just going off of memory. Um, vegetables and not stone. Because in the next stage, you have stone and cattle. Um, oh, shoot. I forgot. Anyway. Uh, it's 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 on the board, but anyway, y- y- so you you have the opportunity to um, uh, uh, man, that's that's gonna bother me, but um, to to basically further establish your farm uh, in the mid game. This is laying the foundation for the end game, um, and I I believe the mid game is kind of the the crux of the game in in some regards to 
uh, allowing yourself to progress to a point where you are competitive to win the game. It allows you to establish a farm in order to reap the benefits that are multiplied at the harvest. Um, of course, you have your grain and your vegetables that can multiply at the end of the harvest and, and be reaped. You have um, your animals that can breed, of course, and and so, um, you know, if you if you establish them and you don't use them for food, then they can accumulate and grow into points. But there, are, you know, there are other things that you need to do in order to get points as well. And so, I to um, further establish and and paint a picture for you of what the mid game portion uh, of Agricola tries to achieve. I wanted to think about the end game first of all. I wanted to think about how many points are possible, um, theoretically possible in this game, if you were to max out as you know reasonably as possible, which is very reasonable in a solo game. Um, I know in a solo game you can get uh, sixty-four points as the max amount of points if you include uh, major occupation, uh, yeah, major improvements. Um, and you're not playing with the cards as well. Um, however, looking, you know, 64 is not going to be, well, all, it's not going to be, uh, rel you know, relatively easy to achieve in a four-player game. It is possible. But um, I, I think depending on, maybe not the cards that are available on Board Game Arena, but with other cards as well, and if you take off, you know, or if you add the, the cards that are banned as well, I think it is possible anyway. But um in a, you know, I, I tried to think about if you were to fill out your farm and have, you know, at least some sort of tile or arrangement on your board to, f you know, fill it out so you don't get any negative points there. And if you were to max out um, the amount of points that you can get just for scoring um, aspects that go on the game. So not, you know, not counting the scores that you get for majors, not counting... Uh, points that you would obtain through occupations and miners as well, just on the board. You've got, and then let's say you have four stone rooms on your board. Um, it, it would change, of course, if you had more or less. But, um, so suppose you had four stone rooms, five fields, four pastures, each with a stable inside of them, five family members, all five family members unlocked, all the crops and animals maxed out, um, you know, you need like eight grain, uh, six or six cattle, you know, et cetera. So you have all of those, those metrics maxed out. Um, I calculated that you could get 55 points just off of that. Let me know if that's, that's incorrect, but I, I, I did that real quick and, and I believe that it, it's true. Regardless, that's still a, a very respectable score in especially in a four-player game of Agricola, as I've seen um, being achieved by other players. Is it feasible to get 55 points every time? I think I think it is. At, at higher at higher player counts, it is. Um, I've seen games where most, if not all, of the players were scoring in the 50s. Um, however, at my level and I, I suppose for a majority of the games, that's not going to happen. It's going to be slightly less than that. If you're playing a good game, I would say the high 40s is what you're shooting for. So perhaps this is uh, due to not having 
every single uh, portion of the um, the scoring at the end of the game based off of these metrics alone um, be fulfilled. You might have two less cow cattle, you know, a couple less grain or something like that. Maybe you have an unused field space as well, uh, which will bring down your theoretical score from 55 to however many that is. How do you make up for that? Because three other players, including yourself, or, you know, four other players, including yourself, are vying for these same metrics and the same resources, not only try and balance using them for food, but to accumulate them to max out the score as much as possible. How do you work around that? Well, you introduce the cards in the game, the occupations in the minors, and of course you've got your majors, and you try to achieve what is called the point ceiling, or at least raise your point ceiling during the game. What does that mean? To me, it means you're finding ways to mitigate the loss that is almost, you know, predicted that you will have for maxing out all of your resources in this game and allowing you to gain points in other ways, usually by focusing your efforts on accumulating resources in that regard or fulfilling certain requirements. One example, and this is a very illustrious example because this card is banned, but think of the braggart. You get, I want to say it's nine points uh, straight off the bat if you have 10 improvements in front of you in played. That's including majors and minor uh, major and minor uh, improvements. <clears throat> so nine points, that's huge, right? Um, that could easily bring, you know, a score, a good, you know, solid score of like 45 if you're, you know, trying your best, but you don't achieve a very, you know, well, well maxed out, uh, well maxed out uh, field, uh, farm and allows you to score in the 50s. And so there are a lot of cards in, in the game you can kind of think about them if if you make the you know uh, comparison to Glass Road. You have your end game orange objective buildings. In a sense, when you're drafting these cards, uh, we can talk about drafting in another episode too. But um, I've learned that not only are you drafting cards that allow you to take actions more efficiently, to gain resources faster for for cheaper, uh, to help you feed as well. But you're also looking for these cards that give you bonus points and thus allow you to raise your point ceiling. And so to me, point ceiling means um, the mitigation of points that you can acquire in this game by focusing on certain aspects of the game, um, making it easier for you to achieve a higher score rather than trying to compete with everyone else who are taking a uh, you know, good actions at the same time and most likely will block you from achieving your goal. Um, another example that is inherent in the game are the, you know, quote-unquote guild cards in uh, the major improvements. You have your basket makers workshop, um, often, you know, uh, abbreviated to BMW, your pottery, your joinery. Not only are they worth two points straight up, they do allow you to to use um, like wood and uh, reed and, and clay for food. But if you do have like five of those resources or more at the end of the game, then you unlock, a, you know, some more points. I believe it's three points on top of the two. So you have a theoretical five point boost 
um, per guild card at the end of the game. So this is a good inherent example of something that you can chase after to increase your point ceiling. Maybe you have some occupations that allow you to gather a lot of wood or a lot of clay. You grab one of those, you could potentially score five points and maybe feed yourself along the way. So to me, to sum this all up, um, oh, I, I did want to also um, leave with you some, some calculations as well uh, for the max amount of points. Now, this kind of further, uh, going back to the last podcast that I had too, theorizing how many actions it took to get gain you know just a generic crop feeding um, engine going versus an animal feeding engine going there are pros and cons to both however um it was you know i theoretically um imagined that it was one action it took one action less to pursue animals in the game uh once again it's hard because um, you might have to fence and that wood is precious in order to build that third room early in the game however um, another argument towards animals being very important in this game comes down to how many max, uh, uh, you know, max amount of points can you get for each of these areas. You take uh, your field and crop point uh, ceiling. If you achieve everything that you can as far as scoring with these uh, these uh, metrics, you've, if you get five fields out on the on the board, and you get uh, eight grain and four vegetables in in your store at the end of the game. That is uh, twelve points plus the uh, five, you know, field um, unused spaces that you've covered up, and so that's seventeen points, right? That you have it at the end of the game. Take uh, on the flip side, pastures and animals. <clears throat> now, the pastures that you create on your board is very uh, variable. It, you know, it can take any shape that you want it to. But I, I think in general, you're trying to you're you're going to probably cover up, um, I think eight uh, spots, right? Uh, perhaps. Anyway, so if you if you max out the amount of pastures that you get, you know you have four pastures. They each have a stable, and having those stables allows you to max out a lot easier the um, amount of animals that you can you can contain within them. Then you can get um, you know twenty points. And then add on the amount of points for the amount of spaces that you've covered up. So maybe maybe 25, 26 points or something like that in total. Um, quite a few more points than you would get for maxing out your crop situation. So to me, the question is, okay, in, in a vacuum, uh, does it seem more efficient to me for points to use crops, perhaps to feed and, you know, not max out potentially, and then use that, um, have that, you know, feeding engine solved with your crops, allowing you to build pastures and fences and acquire animals to breed along the way and gain you a lot more points in the future. That's, I think, I think that's the way to go. Um, just looking at the numbers, once again, you know, this is all in a vacuum. This does not take into account other players' choices and actions as well as the cards that you and your fellow competitors are dealt and, and drafted. And so um, things, every game is different, and that's why Agricola is so replayable and fun. But um, I will leave that as food for thought for you. 
in addition to like, you know, family, if you have all five family members, that's 15 points. If you have um, like five rooms set up that are stone, each of those are worth two points. And so that's 10 points plus another five for covering up. Um, well, I, maybe I guess just another three for covering up your um, unused spaces. And so that's uh, 13 points. So as you can see, you know, building rooms is not point efficient. Family members aren't, uh, you know, they're about the same, if not a little bit less than crops and fields. And then animals are where the, a lot of the points are at. Add that, uh, take that, um, uh, use that thought as you draft your cards and, and formulate a strategy and just experiment with it and try it out and, and, and see how that works. And so, uh, with that, I, um, once again, to sum up the mid game, you're trying to max out your, your, um, point ceiling and opportunities by playing occupations, building out your farm, which is your fields and your pastures and acquiring the, um, points and resources necessary to be able to multiply for the end game animals to, uh, tending to be better than crops. And so that's what I've learned um, in preparation for this episode on the mid game of Agricola. So congratulations, you made it through another episode of Agricola strategy and then some um, and my thoughts on other Uwe Rosenberg games. Uh, such a fantastic variety and line of games. I always look forward to it. And I really don't mind missing out on some of the hotness sometimes because there's just so much uh, meat and, and, and joy that can be enjoyed. Um, so much depth, I guess, is better than meat. <laughs> um, that can be enjoyed from um, exploring some of these games uh, by Uwe Rosenberg. And uh, they're just so replayable and fun to me. Um, and if you're listening to the po this podcast and made it this far, that's probably true for you too. So I appreciate you and uh, thanks, thank you for listening. And um, please leave a comment on on anything. If you want to elaborate on any errors that I've made as far as strategy is concerned in Agricola and Fields of Arla, go ahead and post that on um, my blog post. Uh, you know, that will be in the show notes as well. Um, I've, I've wanted to consolidate all the communications that I've had on the guild or on, on the, on the blog post, just cause I, I'm not on social media that often. So, um, yeah, if, if you do want to interact with me, um, in the show, uh, go ahead and leave a comment there and I will be more than happy to, to, uh, continue a conversation there with you. And I'm just trying to learn along with you. If you have words of wisdom to impart, please do so for my sake, as well as for everyone else. And with that, um, I appreciate, um, everything that you guys do and, uh, hope you have a great day and please schedule an appointment with your board game doctor real soon. Take care. Well, I forgot to mention too, that I will throw, th 